Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. The Artemis community understands that as hunters and anglers, we have a responsibility to actively engage in the conservation of our lands, waters, and wildlife. With that in mind, each year, the Artemis Podcast delves into a special series focusing on a specific conservation issue. Our goal is to dig into the complexity, deepen our understanding, and help spur conversation. This year, our series is about climate change. If we all take a minute to think about our time in the woods and on the water, if we take time to think about our experience, we can't deny that we are seeing drastic changes. Changes in temperature, changes in water levels, changes in habitat quality, and changes in the number and distribution of game. We are seeing changes in our hunting and fishing seasons, and it's impacting us and our communities. In this series, we talk to scientists, conservationists, and leaders from across the country and ask them questions related to climate change to deepen our understanding of what's happening, what's being done about it, and where we can contribute. We're looking forward to digging in, and we thank you for joining us for the Artemis Climate Series. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for the final episode of the Artemis Climate Series. Our co-host today is Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Hi, Marcia. Guess what? What? (laughs) This is the last episode of 2021, which means we've done two full years of podcasting together. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my gosh. Wow. I... I want to go listen to the first one that I was on with you. And at the same time, I'll probably never listen to the first one that I was on with you. (laughs) Yes, I tend not to go back um, just because there was such a big learning curve. (laughs) That is so exciting. And you know what? I love that we've been ending the years with these series um, because I, well, first of all, as a podcast listener myself of all various types of podcasts, I just think it's so interesting, these deep dives into one subject. Um, I've, you know, it's such a successful model, I think, to really open up people's understanding of something that you can't really get across in a single episode. So I'm super excited that we're ending the year with this. Thank you. Yeah, me too. I, I love these series and I still actually go back and listen to um, parts of the uh, Monty's Shop series because it was so informative um, and I learned so much and I'm expecting this climate series to be the same. Uh, Can we start doing um, like these series, but traveling to go <laughs> like we should go to all these places and get you know like in-person interviews with everybody from your lips to the funders ears yes <laughs> <laughs> for sure that would be amazing um to, for a couple of reasons one to sit down face to face with our guests and have those conversations and to be in the field and yes yes if you're listening and that is something you want to, you can donate to Artemis at artemis.nwf.org slash donate. Um, but seriously, that would be a lot of fun. Um, our guest today, I'm really excited to delve into the final topic for our climate series. And I think you all will be too. Our guest today is Gwen Sanchez. Hi, Gwen. Good morning. How is everyone today? Doing good so far. How are you? Where are you? I'm I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm in uh, snowy Reno, Nevada today. Uh, this is where uh, I'm currently based out of for my day job. Did you say snowy? 
Reno, Nevada? Yes, it is snowing in Reno right now, which is great because we definitely need the moisture across all of our western areas, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in a bit, but I'm so excited to see a little bit of snow on the ground for sure. Yeah, we had, so I'm up in Montana and we've had, you know, we've gotten a little bit of rain so far this fall, but, um, or I guess winter now but it doesn't hasn't felt like winter because our first snow was on like Tuesday I think in the valley we've had snow up high for a little bit but our first snow here in Missoula Valley was on Tuesday which is late but delightfully welcome and I don't know I was singing Christmas carols and kicking snow because it was just so I was happy to see it yeah it's welcomed for sure we we need Uh, a lot more of these storms over the next few months to try to help us get out of the hole that we currently find ourselves in with regards to moisture and drought in this area. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Becca, did you get snow in Idaho? I bet you usually get what we get. So I'm thinking you probably did. Um, At our house yesterday, I think we got like 100 flakes of snow but 100 I'm, flakes of snow. Uh, <laughs> a rough estimate but yeah. I'm looking from my office window up at the mountains and there's snow up there uh, which That's is good. wonderful to see and also we still have more wood cutting to do so if uh-huh. it could hold off the heavy snow could hold off for like another two weeks that would be great Excellent. <laughs> from your lips to the <laughs> to the snow's ears right that's my, <laughs> apparently that's my phrase for the day Excellent. Well, let's dive in. Gwen, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah. First, thanks for having me. It's, it's so great getting to spend some time with, with you both today. Um, my name again, Gwen Sanchez, and I'm currently the Forest Fire Management Officer for the Humboldt Toyabe National Forest, which covers uh, pretty much the state of Nevada and portions of California. So it's the largest forest in the lower 48 um, with over 6 million acres of land. So a significant portion of um, Nevada. And uh, yeah, it brings a lot of complexities given the fact that it's an entire forest. So it's an exciting place to work and um, really, really excited to be here. That's amazing. I didn't know that it was the largest national forest in the lower 48. That's and and to be the fire manager of that kind of area, that's that would terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So previous to this, I I was actually the assistant director of operations for Northern California. So I oversaw the ten most northern um, forests in California, and and so it was kind of a little bit of a nice change. And I know that sounds funny, being that it's all of Nevada, but. You know, having come from Northern California, it felt a little bit uh, comfortable um, that, you know, I didn't have 10 forests anymore. I just had one forest in this new position and this new role. But it's still very complex, lots of challenges, as I'm sure you can all imagine, and and lots of moving parts and pieces. But it's a great place to be and really enjoying this position. Can you tell us a little bit about, I'm just, I'm very curious about your journey um, to this position and how you got interested in fire management. Yeah, so it's been a long, long journey and uh, it's covered several states and, um, you know, I'm a little embarrassed maybe, maybe 
am aging myself, but several decades of experience. So I, I actually started out in Colorado on a timber marking crew. And uh, th- that was in the you know late 90s. And, and there were no uh, permanent firefighters at that point um, on the forest that I was in, on the Rio Grande National Forest. Uh, they had, you know, a fire engine that was staffed by a lot of the other resource areas, including the timber folks or the people that cleared trails. And uh, so as a timber marker, I would drive the fire truck out. And if there was a, a report of a fire, we'd jump in the fire truck and we'd go, you know, fight the fire. And, and then after we were done, we'd go back and finish marking timber. Uh, in the late 90s, there was a big buildup. Um, that looked at the maximum efficiency level for fire response across the entire country, really. And as a result, we started to see an increase of firefighting resources and full-time permanent firefighters within the system. So as that uh, buildup happened, I was able to get on a uh, firefighting crew. And so I've spent time in crews and engines, um, uh, helicopters. Uh, after a couple years, I transferred to South Dakota and spent some time there. Uh, I did some time in fuels and uh, eventually a battalion chief and a division chief, which is in charge of a division, a couple battalions um, and you know several crews and uh, engine modules there. And then after after that, I decided to try my hands out west and move to California. I ran operations for a forest in Northern California, fire operations with several divisions um, on the Shasta Trinity National Forest and um, did a couple you know, details here and there and then eventually uh, took the position of assistant director for operations, working out of the regional office for California, covering Northern California and operations of Northern California, overseeing um, operations for all the 10 most Northern forests, as well as the cash system, which is the system that's used to logistically support our firefighters. Um, the dispatch area, um, the center manage- management that that uh, mobilizes all of the firefighters uh, to the various areas and the smoke jumper program. So there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. Uh, that that was a, a lot of work for you know a handful of years. And after that, I had an opportunity to relocate um, because of a personal choice. Uh, I had met someone and. Uh, we were engaged, and I wanted to relocate to get closer to him. And so I accepted a position, um, the position that I'm currently in right now, to um, Nevada and overseeing operations in Nevada and part of California. So my journey has, you know, sent me to several different states, a lot of time in operations, some time in fuels. And along the way, a couple details in four supervisor positions and district ranger positions, just to get a broad sense of the other resource areas that we're also trying to help protect and um, help to support in fire. 
And so that's, that's how I got to where I am today. That is an incredible journey. And just hearing you talk about all of that, imagining your depth of understanding and knowledge of fire, um, it, it must be absolutely amazing. And I also think hearing you talk about how it's changed over the last like 30 years, um, and it has changed a lot. And I think that's really interesting to consider. I, I, I moved out to the West in early 2000, um, like in the early 2000s. So I did, I wasn't aware of sort of that earlier history um, and growth that happened in the 90s. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective. Um, and then lastly, <laughs> uh, having, uh, you know, anybody who lives in the West, um, fire is, is a big part of our lives and having known and loved firefighters, um, the work that you all do is, is intense and important. Um, and it really matters. So thank you for the work that you do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so rewarding and a lot of folks wonder why. You know, how, how do you do that? How do you uh, dig line all day and hike those steep hills with all of that equipment and, and not even how, but why, you know, it's such a hard job. And, and the answer is you just, you get it in your blood and there's a sense of duty and uh, that just kind of overcomes you. Uh, for me, I, I was actually uh, going to school to be an engineer. I graduated from the School of Mines with an environmental engineering degree and decided after I was offered an engineering position that I wanted to fight fire for one more year and I wasn't going to accept that in engineering position quite yet. And um, here I am decades later still fighting fire, uh, primarily because it's just so great to be able to just have that duty and make a change and make a difference in, in people's lives. And, and I know that, you know, might not sound, uh, if that's not a talking point, that's coming from someone who, you know, had other opportunities and have a, I have a bachelor's degree in engineering, environmental engineering, and, and I'm still fighting fire because the work is so rewarding. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, I think anybody, I think you have to love it. And, and, and feel that it's rewarding in order to do it because there's no part of it that's easy. Um, and that's, yeah, and there's a lot of folks. It. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. Um, you know, it is because of the reward and there's a lot of firefighters who have degrees in other areas that are well, well educated um, up to master's and doctorate levels. And at the end of the day, they still choose to do this because there the rewards that come with it. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for telling us uh, your story. Appreciate it. I would love if you wouldn't mind, can you tell us a story about a time in the field that is particularly memorable for you? Wow, you know, there's so many. Um, they always say that that the reason you keep coming back to this is for the sunrises and sunsets. Uh, this position, this career has really sent me to different areas across the country that I would have never seen and ridges that I would have never hiked and 
honestly, it's not just across the country. We get deployed internationally to support other countries. The, uh, I don't know if there's one um, specific you know, time that I reflect back on that, that made me want this career or that just stands out. I think for me, it's, it's all the above. It's being able to go to states across the country. I've fought fire in 37 states so far. And many of those areas I would have never gone to. I would have never seen, I would have never had those opportunities going to Australia, supporting um, Hawaii, uh, supporting Alaska, fighting fire in Alaska. There's just so many different areas of, of the country and, and different cultures that I have been exposed to that I would have never known about, that I would have never been exposed to had I not chased this career path. And you talk to firefighters across the country and and it's about the people and it's about the sunrises and it's about the sunsets because we almost see those every single day. Some of them are hard and some of them are, you know, uh, they just come and they go, but there are those times and those days that you're standing over a rock outcropping and you've dug line all night long, all night long. And finally, you know help is coming because the sunrise is starting to come up over the horizon. And, and those are the, the moments that make it memorable. When you've dug line um, all day long and all of a sudden you start to hear a dozer and you know that you're tied in and you know you've got a chance to, to catch this area and catch this line. And so I don't know if that's, you know, answering your question, it's, it's really hard just to nail it down to one. Um, it's all of it. It's all of those things. It's the, it's the culture that you've been exposed to. It's the areas that you get to see that you never would have. It's the traveling and, and maybe it's the people more than anything else. It's the people, it's the relationships that you build um, and knowing that the person next to you has your back and you need to have their back and you all play a really important role in getting to that final goal. Yeah. Thank you. That painted a beautiful picture of uh, sort of the, the sentiment and the emotions that happen when you're out there. So thank you for that. I want to shift us a little bit to speaking um, more specifically again about Nevada. Can you describe your forest to us? What kinds of, I'm, it's huge and diverse, obviously, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, just take us there. Yeah, it is huge and it is diverse. So there are two very, very, uh, you know, contradicting things. It, it depends and, and it's hard to explain because we do cover so many acres. We have areas um, that are, you know, pushing 10, 11,000 foot elevation that are up in, you know, uh, iceberg areas that are above tree line and that are high rocky outcroppings along the Sierra Nevada range, all the way down to uh, the desert and uh, really important critical sage grouse habitat 
and you know critical habitat supporting a lot of different um, you know species and everything in between. So what makes this forest so unique and so so cool is you do have those elevation changes and everything that comes in between with those transition um, phases. And so it's really hard to say that we are a timber forest because we're not. And we can't say that we're a uh, desert forest or a deserted area because we're, we're not just that either. We're everything in between. So it makes it really challenging and really fun because every single fire uh, runs across potentially multiple different types of landscapes and, and types of ecosystems. And depending on where that fire is, it's a different type of ecosystem. Um, almost every single fire that we have across the, the state, a lot of other areas, and you know, I, I reflect back on Northern California, you know, it was it was very much the same. Um, you know, it was timber uh, across most of those forests, and that's just not the case here. We have everything, um, very diverse ecosystems, depending on the elevation and where you're at across the state, whether you're in California or Nevada, and and that makes it really complex and and oddly really really fun because you're just not um, quite sure where that fire is going to be and what might be uh, coming at you that day. And so you've got to train for all of it and you got to be prepared for every one of those scenarios every day. So I'm curious, and this might be getting us in the weeds a little bit. Um, if you had, so how do you, what's the first step in responding to those different types of fires and how does that change whether you're, you're dealing with a timber fire or uh, like a sagebrush fire? How do you approach those differently? Great question. Um, we do have areas that are identified across both of the states that we have, all the areas uh, that have run cards and, and we have run cards on every forest across the country. And those run cards tell us for each of those polygons, the types of resources that, that need to be responding. And those resource lists are based on the type of ecosystem that's there. So if we're working up into a wilderness area, we're not going to be responding a dozer because we can't get a dozer into a lot of those areas that are steep and rocky. We just can't get there, but we will be responding additional crews and potentially a helicopter to support those crews. If we're working down closer to the desert areas and we do have uh, a lot more dozer friendly areas in those areas, we do have dozers on the run card and we maybe have less, of a crew presence and more of an engine presence. And so that's built out across the entire country right now. Uh, that system's in place for every polygon across the country. And we have got multiple run cards. So we, we know, depending on where that fire is called in, what resources we're going to respond. And then at that point, once we have resources en route or we have a helicopter overhead and we can start seeing to see the smoke and we know what that fire behavior is doing, 
then we can either request additional resources on top of that, or we can turn resources away that we may not need to respond. That's interesting. That's cool. Uh, Historically speaking, what would a healthy fire cycle look like for your forest? Uh, Again, it depends on where you're at across the forest. And so when we talk about uh, fire cycles, it really is ecosystem dependent. In areas where you see grass or shrubs, you tend to have a fire return interval that's much more frequent. Uh, Those smaller types of vegetation burn at a more frequent rate historically. In areas that are a lot wetter, um, maybe let's talk a little bit about Florida. Uh, Those areas, you may not have uh, a fire return in there because they just are wetter systems overall. And it takes, you know, a more heavy drought year to make those fuels available. In areas of timber at higher elevations, again, those stands tend to be a lot thicker. They tend to be higher elevation. They tend to be in areas that do receive more precipitation historically. And so your fire return interval is a lot longer. So across our forest, we range, depending again on the ecosystem that we have, we range anywhere from you know a 50 to 100 year fire return interval in the higher elevations to the lower elevations, which might be, you know, a three to five to 10 year fire return interval. So it is really dependent on the ecosystem that you're referring to and that you're talking about. We do have that mapped again for the entire country of what those historic return intervals are. And, um, you know, we're, we're pretty much exceeding those right now across the country. The areas that we did have and saw uh, a 50-year fire return interval, we're now burning those stands every 20 years. And so you're seeing that those return rates are increased now as a result of climate changes that we're kind of going through. And severe droughts are causing us to burn more frequent in these stands. And that's across the board. Uh, Becca, did you have any questions you wanted to jump in on? I, um, Ashley was trying to jump in on the podcast we were recording yesterday and she was on mute. So she thought we were just ignoring her. (laughs) I want to make sure that doesn't happen with you. I have been on mute, but you are not ignoring me. Okay. (laughs) I'm really, so, um, so Gwen, I work, uh, as a communication specialist focusing on rangelands. So I'll be really interested when this conversation really starts to turn towards, um, I know we've talked a little bit about changing fire regimes, but talking sort of about healthy rangeland fire, um, what we're seeing today, you know, what's causing it, things like that. Um, I'm excited to dive a little bit more into that, especially because you're in Nevada. So Nevada is such a rangeland state and sees such high intensity fires uh, compared to what used to exist. So uh, excited to dig into that. Whenever, Marsha, whenever you want to segue into that. <laughs> um, I'm curious because, so, so again, 
uh, as I mentioned, Gwen, when I reached out to you about this podcast, we're doing this whole series on climate and really trying to um, have have in-depth conversations about the complexity of this system and how climate change is either exacerbating conservation issues or causing conservation issues and just trying to kind of piece it out and having a conversation um, with our hunting and fishing community about how it's impacting our seasons and what we can do about it. And so, and I think it's particularly complicated with fire. (laughs) Um, But if you could, could you talk to us a little bit about how climate change is affecting wildfire currently? Yeah, definitely. So, so managing wildfires is inherently complex and challenging, and it's been that way for, you know, the last 20 years. I think what climate change has done is really compounded that. So what we used to think was complex 20 years ago, that's not even close to what we're seeing as complex now. Uh, it's brought, you know, longer fire seasons. Uh, wildfires are occurring outside of that historic fire season in different parts of the country. Like I just spoke to, uh, wildfires are burning uh, more land on average, and so we're seeing fires get bigger. We we just last this last season, this summer, saw the first fire in in the nation get over a million acres. I mean. Think about that, a single fire over a million acres uh, and and more extreme fire behavior. So in areas that we just didn't ever expect fire to, to burn in, we're seeing fire actively burn in those areas now because of, of this increased drought and what climate has done to how fires are reacting across the landscapes. And so we're seeing more fire, we're seeing bigger fire, and that, that fire is more extreme than we've ever seen, you know, in my, in my experience and, and um, really ever. And uh, since, since we've been tracking wildfires, we've not seen anything around this. And so, you know, what, what does that do? Well, these extreme wildfires uh, are really hurting our our watersheds. They're changing, potentially destroying wildfire or uh, wildlife habitat. Um, But if they're not destroying, they're altering it. And and that's a a big deal. We see, we're seeing invasive species come in um, following these wildfire events and different insect infestations that are following these events. And so even if a wildfire is uh, not necessarily having as big of an impact initially, some of those, you know, follow-up consequences are, are then further damaging these landscapes. And so, you know, I think it's really important to, to understand that, um, the environment, the fire environment that that we're faced with right now, is is just a really, I'll be frank, it's scary, and it's it's something uh, that is so complex that fire managers are struggling to wrap their minds around it. I was on the 
Um, Lake Tahoe Basin is the forest supervisor this summer. And so I had the Caldor fire. I was the agency administrator for the Caldor fire. And, you know, a lot of specialists, a lot of fire behavior specialists kept saying, there's no way it'll, it'll jump the Sierra Pacific crest. It's all rock. There's no way it'll get over. And you know what? We had several fires along the Sierra front do that this year. And we're seeing things that we never thought we would see. So when you think about that in terms of wildlife habitat, you know, not only are we seeing changes in that habitat going from you know, a shrub component to now only a grass component or from a, you know, timbered component to a shrub and grass component. Um, so you're seeing those, those changes in habitat or you're, you're seeing a complete, um, you know, destruction of some of those areas. Frankly, they're burning with such intensity that it's going to take a lot of years to recover from. From those events. It's interesting to think of how the 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 drought and the increasing intensity and, and extremeness of these fires makes them so unpredictable. Um, and and yeah, how scary that is if you're if you're working in them or if you're trying to protect communities around them. Um, that unpredictability is. Uh, I can't even imagine what that's like to try and deal with. It's hard and it's, it's scary. Our, our fires this year were outperforming the models that we have. Every model that we have, our fires were outperforming them. And so the historic knowledge that we have and what we based even our modeling on drought, climate change has adjusted that so much that many times they're not even valid anymore. And our historical frame of reference is no longer valid. And that puts fire managers in a really tough place. That's not a good place to be. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable because you're just not sure. And, and you don't really know what may happen because things are happening outside the norm and outside our frame of reference every single day. And it's hard to, it's hard to, to try to get ahead of that. And I also I think appreciate on top of the, um, on top of the, you know, on top of climate change, um, on top of everything natural that's causing these fires, we have this huge increase in recreation. So you have people um, who maybe aren't familiar with uh, like recreating safely in a drought, uh, you know, in August when it's 100 degrees and the fuels are incredibly dry. Um, just understanding how to responsibly be out there without um, potentially causing some sort of harm to resources or um, just the landscape. Uh, I know we see a lot of human-caused fires in rangelands and forests, and I don't know, as an agency, it's probably difficult to plan for that right you can't say oh well there's um like rear in august we should expect this to happen you kind of just have to wait around and see what's going to happen year to year and figure out how to respond to that 
Yeah, nationally, this is a statistic that I love to share because a lot of people are usually surprised by this, but nationally, um, nearly nine out of every 10 wildfires Mm. are human caused. Oh, that breaks my heart. (laughs) Think about that. Almost, you know, 80 to 90% of our wildfires nationally are human caused. And, and just think about if we didn't have to respond to even, let's just say 80% of, of those fires didn't exist. Let's just say 80% of those didn't exist. How would we better be able to respond to the 20% that are lightning if we didn't have to respond to the 80% that are human? And a lot of times it's, it's uneducation. Um, sometimes it's, you know, arson, we do run with that. We, we were, it was just announced yesterday that two people were arrested for arson on the Caldor fire. Um, that, that's a reality that we're facing. Think about all of the destruction that happened from that. And how, how do we do a better job of educating those new users because a lot of the folks that are probably listening to this are not new users. We've been recreating uh, in the woods for years. Uh, We understand safe campfires. We understand um, how to navigate uh, these woods responsibly. Like you said, COVID has brought a lot of new users into our uh, recreating community. And a lot of those folks don't have that same level of education. And so what role do we all play who have been strong stewards of of these landscapes? What role do we play in helping to educate them around safe recreation in and around, you know, our, our areas and our forests and different landscapes that we have? I mean, I just, I think about this number a lot, 80, 80%, 90% could all be prevented. And that makes a big difference. And there's been a lot, millions of acres of wildfire because of human caused fires every single year. Do you know within that data, what the most common, is it campfires that are the most common cause of human started fires? Um, it, it is not. Nope. Mm-hmm. So arson is, is a smaller number. Uh, you know, it, that number includes debris burning. So people that, you know, were burning a pile in their backyard and thinking they're doing the right thing and go in and, and, you know, don't keep track of it or, or it rains and they think that's good enough. And then three or four days later, you know, it's burning a whole hillside uh, equipment sparking. You know, you'll see that a lot. People that are out, you know, doing a lot of different activities with different equipment and the spark arresters out or, you know, different things like that. Or their chains are dragging on the ground. They're pulling a boat and their chains, you know, are dragging on the ground and it sparks, you know, several fires along the road. People leaving campfires unattended. They they just think it's going to go out because they see a campfire ring where they think that they built a campfire ring and all of a sudden that that campfire that they just didn't extinguish properly is now you know spread to the vegetation and 
and become a problem. And so there's a lot of different types of, of human activities. You know, another one is uh, people out shooting, uh, sighting in their guns or, or just, you know, recreational shooting and they don't have a safe space. It hits the rock, it sparks the vegetation, and now we've got a vegetation fire and they're moving so quickly that, you know, these folks just aren't able to catch them. And, and that's a big problem. So we've got a lot of areas and a lot of different uh, groups of recreationalists that we are trying to reach out to and that we're trying to help educate around um, human-caused fires and preventing those human-caused fires. And it's interesting because I wonder how much of it, too, is is – I mean, I agree. I think there's a huge learning curve. I moved out to Montana from Michigan and, and there was a lot that I had to learn about um, forest fire and, and recreation in that transition. Um, and so I think people who are new to the to forest culture or fire culture is definitely part of it. But I also wonder if some of it is the other side of the equation where you have people who've lived here for so long and they have these practices that they're used to doing and used to thinking it's safe, but because of the drought and the the incredible heat and dryness that we've faced over the last several years, what used to be true no longer is. And so there's a little bit of a delay in catching up um, old practices with new requirements. I think that's a great point. And I think that's the case in a lot of, of scenarios. Uh, we, we see that with debris burning. People you know, that we go to that says, well, I've done this every year for the last 30 years. Well, this year is different because there is no moisture in the soil and it's going to move underneath the snow. We are seeing that. We're seeing wow. debris burns that are moving under the snow and popping up, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 feet, you know, down the way because it's, it's just so dry and underneath the snow. You see that with equipment areas that, you know, they used to park there for the last 20 years. And this year, that same parking spot caused a fire where we used to go shoot. We've shot at this area, you know, in this location for the last 20 years, and we've never had a problem. But everything's so dry right now that any little spark, any little spark is now starting a fire that it didn't do that 20 years ago. And so I think that's a a real problem and a challenge that we're having is we're trying to get our feet under us as fire managers on responding to climate change. And we're trying hard to educate others on that same thing on, on real, real areas that we're just not quite sure we understand ourselves and thinking that this might be safe, but, but it might not. And we just don't know because climate is moving so quick on us and it's hard to keep up. I think about assumptions when you're out hunting um, up here, sort of in the Northern Rockies of the lower 48, Montana, Idaho, um, people want to have warming fires when they're out, you know, hunting deer and elk in October. And this year it was still so dry, even though it was cold, it was dry. And I think it was Marsha up near you, uh, a couple of hunters started a forest fire what was it in October because of a warming fire? So just having to accept that um, kind of like what you were just saying, Gwen, like having to adapt, even if we don't want to, even if it's something we've done forever, um, adapt to this new reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a, a 
a sportsman and, and uh, my fiance and I, you know, hunt a lot, spend a lot of time in the woods. And, and a couple years ago, we actually changed where we were camping and we started camping in a campground because I was starting to get concerned that, that it just wasn't safe where we were anymore. We couldn't do it safely anymore. And that was in Idaho. We, uh, we go elk hunting in Idaho every single year and, and it just wasn't feeling right anymore. And so we ended up moving to a different camp because of that. And, you know, the last thing you want is, you know, uh, someone, two people that are well-educated in, in fire, you know, to start fires, but we might have to start considering that collectively across our sportsmen's groups and, and what does right look like and areas that you might've camped in for the last, you know, 20 years may not be the right place to camp anymore. That's so interesting to think of that. Yes. I mean, our hunting season this November was incredibly dry um, that we didn't get any snow throughout our, our big game general season, uh, at least not down low. And when you think about everybody around hunting camps and the tradition of the fire and the need for warmth, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting how we're going to have to consider new things at a time of year when we usually don't. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure that anyone who tried to, you know, elk hunt this year is probably in the same boat as me. Um, <laughs> there was no snow on the ground. There nope. was no snow on the ground. Uh, we didn't get snow the entire 10 days we were out. Yeah. And a lot of us are running into that. And it's not just elk, it's deer, it's antelope, it's, you know, it's across the board. We're We're even, you know, looking at changes with with our uh, fowl seasons and, you know, waterfowl and, and, you know, different birds that, I mean, it's, it's just not coming in the way that we've historically seen it. I want to go back quickly to something you mentioned um, about fire as well and how it's destroying and altering habitat. And I think that's a really another important factor to, to consider when we're talking about forest fires, because we all obviously understand the, um, potentially destructive nature of the fire as it's happening. Uh, but I don't think we always keep in mind the long-term effects of that, particularly with habitat quality and how that destruction just does make it ripe for invasive species and invasive insects and how recovering from that and restoring the land back to a quality ecosystem is incredibly difficult. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, really, really the question that you're asking me is about resiliency. And, you know, our stands are struggling to be resilient right now. And the recovery of those stands after wildfire is taking a lot longer than than really it should be. And what we've seen in in you know history tell us that that it should be happening and some of our stands we've seen just stand replacement fires come through and areas where we had healthy timber stands are there there is not a single green tree left because of the intensity that we're seeing these wildfires burn in and so it, it really does come down to our increased recovery time periods of these stands um, and we saw that a lot in, in the West and, 
and one area that I do want to kind of speak to specifically that I that I had experienced with uh, this summer on the Caldor, we saw that fire um, push through several different areas and and really understand replacing conditions. Uh, however, when we went into areas that had been treated, that fire was different. The effects of that fire were a lot different in a lot of different landscapes, a lot of different uh, ecosystems. And the the resiliency of that landscape was, it was impressive to see. Uh, those those landscapes that are resilient to begin with, they're seeing less intensity and they're seeing less destruction of the wildlife habitat or of even the overall general ecosystem. And the other thing that we're seeing is because they're not sand replacing, their recovery period is so much shorter. Some of those sands, because they were treated and they were resilient to start with, the recovery period might be five, 10 years, and, and you might not even recognize that a fire had gone through that stand where similar ecosystems that were not resi resilient, that had not been treated, you might have a 50-year recovery period or a 100-year recovery period. So I think in terms of resiliency, we talk about resilient stand landscapes a lot. And what does that really mean to be a resilient landscape? Um, it, it's a lot about the upfront work, but to me, it's a lot about the recovery period too, and maybe more so about the recovery period. How quickly do those stands recover and, and come back to being a, a really healthy, thriving landscape again? Because that's what we want. We want those healthy, thriving landscapes across our system. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's harder to get there when you do see uh, some of the, the climate change effects that we're seeing right now. So resiliency comes hand in hand with recovery. And, and I think that might be even more what you're speaking to than, than resiliency at times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you talked about areas that need that had been treated. What does that mean? Oh, great question. Yeah, so we we have a lot of different types of treatments that we can um, implement on our lands. Everything from mechanical treatment to where we would actually bring equipment in and we would thin the forest out to hand treatment, where we we bring sawyers in with. Uh, chainsaws and they thin out the forest to prescribe fire where we we actually prescribe treatments of fire where we go in and we put fire on the landscape during times where we we have a lot better control over it and we have a lot better outcomes that would come from uh, you know fire on those landscapes so there's a lot of different opportunities we will pile uh, different areas. So we'll, we'll, we'll take all that dead and down um, and we'll pile it and then we'll go in and burn it when it's under the snow and we'll get rid of it. We're really talking about reducing, um, reducing the amount of material that that's out there and, and maybe in some areas protecting the material that's out there. 
And so when we talk about, you know, different ecosystems within the grasslands and the plains and, and across parts of Nevada, uh, we're trying to protect things like sage grouse habitat. We're trying to protect some of those areas. And so where do we strategically place these barriers so that we don't have large fires moving through those landscapes so that we have opportunities built along the way to minimize the effects when we do get wildfire. We have to be strategic about that because otherwise we're going to lose it all. You know, we look at, at areas where uh, we might have critical habitat for, for different species. And in the past, we've tend to just exclude that area from treatment. What we're finding out is we've excluded the area, and then when we do have wildfire, we've lost it all. We've lost that critical habitat entirely. And so we're really thinking about and researching, a lot of research around all of this right now, we're researching how do we change this so that maybe we aren't hands-off, but we treat it enough so that it can be resilient and bounce back if a fire comes through. And so there's a lot of different things that we're trying to work through and try to figure out and try and do research. Um, we don't have all the answers right now, but we're trying to do our best to give ourselves a lot of different options on the landscape to be able to um, interfere with the large scale fires that we're seeing right now and give us opportunities on the ground so our firefighters can get in safely and can be more effective. It's fascinating. Uh, it's really fascinating to think of effective management and intentional management as a tool for what you were talking about, the quicker recovery after fire um, and, and how both uh, and just, yeah, the resiliency that that action can embed. It's fascinating. Uh, and it's complex. I imagine it's Lots complex. of moving parts and pieces. <laughs> uh, and, and, and a ton of human factors too, right? Because I think when, as, um, uh, as the community that works daily in, in fire management and forest management is, like you said, there's still a bunch of research happening, um, and in changes within, uh, what we know and what we don't know happening. Um, and that's within the community. And then you look outside at the general public um, who's also impacted by these large fires in in complex ways, uh, and and I guess just um, misconceptions and uh, misunderstandings about effective forest management, about forest fires, and about forest cycles, and uh, and so there's that factor in that too. Um, and I think I I'd, I'd be curious to hear what your like what your um, thoughts are on, on the general public's biggest misconceptions about effective forest and fire management? Yeah, I think, I think it's important to recognize that it is not a one-size-fits-all model. And what might be right in one area may not be appropriate or right or sufficient in a different area. I think it's, it's all about trying to find the right place the right time, the right condition, and really what does that right restored ecosystem look like? What is, what is a natural condition? Some areas are naturally stocked heavier than others. Some areas uh, do have grass versus you know, shrubs. Some areas are vice versa. And so we really try to 
to look at all of those different components when we're trying to restore our ecosystems to their natural conditions. And, and it's not a one size fits all model. And right looks different depending on where you're at and what resource or, or what you're trying to, to manage. Um, and, and you all know that uh, the, the climate of sage grouse is much different than the climate of elk or deer. And, and so what, what is that habitat that we're trying to, to help and trying to restore? And a lot of times, you know, people will say, well, here we did this. And why aren't they doing that? Well, it might be that that's not the right place to do that. Or the conditions are far enough out of natural normal that it's not the right condition. Or our ecosystem is, you know, far enough out that outside of that natural condition that we may have to do two or three three different types of treatments to get it back. So our first treatment might not get us there. It might not be enough, but we know that we need to step through it in order to allow a little bit of recovery time in between all of those different treatments. And so I would encourage all of our listeners to be engaged, ask those questions when you see those opportunities come up to be able to understand the why and and really be able to understand that it's not a one-size-fits-all model across the country. And it really is about trying to look at these ecosystems independently and try to get closer to right. And it might take a couple entries or a couple different treatments to get there. Becca, do you want to ask specifically about sagebrush now? <laughs> <laughs> Is this my segue, Marsha? This is your segue. Um, Graceful, wasn't it? How, yeah. Let me think about how I want to frame it. Because um, I feel like that was a great, Gwen, you just did a great job of sort of tying a bow on how people should think about different landscapes. Um, Marsha? Yeah, you hear a lot about, you know, just cut timber, cut timber. And I'm like, well, that, that, you know, that doesn't do it in, in middle of Nevada. And so, you know, I think in terms of, of sage grouse or sagebrush habitat, you know, one of the questions that you might be able to throw out there is, is our wildfires are, are eliminating a lot of that critical habitat and it turning it into grass models. And why is that a bad thing? And maybe, you know, maybe you all might be able to answer that question even better than, than I can is why is it important to the wildlife? Why, why is sagebrush critical habitat and to what resources? And I don't think a lot of people understand why it matters that we're losing that critical habitat. Yeah. And I think too, if you're not very familiar with, um, with the sagebrush ecosystem, you look at that, let's say you, you plop someone down in the middle of Nevada and you've got mountains around, but everything down at that lower valley level is sagebrush predominantly. So it's a shrub step ecosystem. And for the average person, if you were, if that were to burn and then it were to come back as just grass, 
or grass and invasive, like other invasive species, um, they probably wouldn't notice a big difference, right? It's all still low growing. It's just this big carpet of plant matter. There's no trees. Um, there's not a lot to look at, quote unquote. Um, but I think what a lot of people, I guess this, you know, thinking about climate change and thinking about carbon emissions. So a topic that we're thinking about a lot at my job right now is what's the importance of rangelands in carbon storage and how does wildfire affect the ability of this ecosystem to store carbon in the soil? And the, the answer to that question is um, it affects it greatly, right? So you have fire come through, you have this huge die off, this huge burning of sagebrush and bitter brush and native grasses and native um, perennial wildflowers. And all that carbon that was stored underground in the soil and in biomass now is able to be released into the atmosphere because of fire. And so I guess from your perspective, you know, do you see there being steps that agencies or other people can take in order to not only spread the importance of this ecosystem and try and sort of help people understand how to be more responsible when they're out in rangelands, but how do we see this, how do we see there being the ability to get this under control? Um, because rangelands, rangelands are so vast, they're, they're, they cover a huge amount of the Western landmass, and they do store an immense amount of carbon underground. So releasing that into the atmosphere is detrimental. So is there a way um, that we can begin to sort of shift this? Yes, the sage sagebrush habitats are, you know, kind of range habitats across Nevada is such a critical habitat to so many of our species. It, it's a really important um, aspect and it's a large area, it's a vast area. And like you said, those habitats do store a lot of carbon and provide us so many benefits, not only to, um, you know, things like carbon sequestration, um, but it also helps with our watersheds and healthy watersheds and being able to keep more moisture within those landscapes because it provides more coverage and provides more shading on just those small microsite types of areas. And every microsite is important to be able to, to uh, give something bigger to a larger watershed. When you start to look at larger watershed areas, one of the struggles that we have when the sagebrush areas burn is it is replaced with grass and invasives and and you know you think about it you're like well grass isn't a bad thing and maybe it's not but the problem is is we do have it replaced with some grasses that are very prone to fire and what that does is it instead of an area seeing a 20-year fire return interval now this area has cheatgrass and it's, the cheatgrass doesn't provide a ton of nutritional value to a lot of the um, animals and the resources that are using that. And cheatgrass burns on average every three years. 
And so we're just perpetuating the problem over and over. And the more it burns, the more invasives and non-natives we see, you know, come into those areas and the degradation, further degradation of those ecosystems. And so one of the things that I spoke to earlier was maybe less about how we treat those areas of sagebrush and maybe more how we protect those areas. So we might have to treat areas adjacent to or even within in order to protect the larger area and provide us opportunity to be successful if and when we do see fires happening. And so we're looking at a lot of those uh, opportunities right now and trying to figure out and think outside the box on how to protect these landscapes and these really critical ecosystems so that they don't see uh, brush systems being completely converted to grass systems that burn more regularly, more frequently, and we end up having issues as a result of that. And it's not just to, um, you know, all of the uh, wildlife that might be using it, but it's also our watersheds, and it's the water we drink, and it's the water that serves our communities, and and we're we have a lot of our watersheds at risk right now nationally, and that's going to impact every single person. It's not just the people out recreating; it's every single person, and it's not just all of those really important resources that depend on on that brush, but it's you and I. And it's the people in those downstream communities. And so it's really important. And we're looking at a lot of different ways and thinking outside the box on, on not necessarily hands-off approach to those critical ecosystems, but what do we need to do to make them resilient and protect them further so that we don't lose that critical ecosystem. It's so interesting, too, uh, in hearing this conversation, um, I, I wasn't aware that areas of, um, oh gosh, uh, it's the end of the week and my brain bubble is starting to form. <laughs> um, critical habitat. Uh, I wasn't aware that critical habitat um, was an area that wasn't treated in the past. Um, and I think that's really interesting to 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 see a shift in consideration of, of practices like that. Um, and I'm also struck by the compounding factor, again, just the compounding factors at play here um, when we talk about fire and carbon and climate change. Um, because we talked in our last podcast about how forests and then also rangelands, Becca, like you were mentioning, they are huge carbon sinks. And so the role that they play in that carbon sequestration and taking carbon out of the environment um, is a really important one. And then they burn. And not only are they putting that carbon back into the atmosphere, but now we lose that, that sink um, for the future. And it's just really interesting how... Uh, how it's just exponential and it seems. Yeah, it's a, uh, it is very, it's a challenge and it's super complex. And I don't know how to package that any, any better really. We, we have historically seen a hands-off approach in a lot of these areas that are identified as critical habitat because we want to protect them and we want to save them. 
what we're finding is our our climate's forced our hands to do something different and think a little bit different about are we really saving them or are we putting them further at risk, risk yeah. by having a hands-off approach and we've found a lot of areas where we've completely lost these critical ecosystems because we've had a hands-off approach and so there's a lot of research right now in a lot of these areas in, including these rangeland areas and maybe specifically within these rangeland areas how do we treat them enough so that they're resilient but not so much that we lose the reason why they're special and why they're so critical. It's a fine balance. And I don't know that, that we have all the answers. I know we don't have all the answers, but we're working really hard to think outside the box and try to figure out different approaches. And really the struggle is our climates are moving so quick that the conditions are changing so fast and, and it's really outpacing us right now. And, and so it's, it's hard. It's really challenging. Um, this seems like a good spot to take a quick break to hear from the NWF Outdoors podcast. We will be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Okay, welcome back. Um, So Gwen, I have... uh, uh, two main questions, um, really that I want to continue to talk about. One is, you know, I think we've talked a lot about, uh, at least I, my focus is always because I live in Montana fires in the West. Um, and I think when we're talking about big fires, uh, most of those happen in the West where we have these broad patches of public land. Uh, can you talk a little bit about fires, um, in the East? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, the first, the first thing that just, you know, is, is very apparent is they're under a very different climate than we have out West. They are, uh, as a result, we see a lot of varying and different ecosystems on the East compared to the West. And, and just like the West, you see a lot of varied ecosystems (laughs) depending on where you're at across the East. Because of, of all of that variety, each, each of these ecosystems are affected different by climate change. And, and I know we've talked a lot about drought out west, and, and that's a, a very typical um, cue within the western climates is, is increased drought. But some of the areas you know, further east and, and in other states are actually seeing that you know, they, they've got too much water and they're impacted by flooding and they're impacted by other parts of extreme climate. And I think a lot of times people think climate change and it, it means drought to them. And that's really what it means out West to a large degree. But 
you know, we've got, we got variations with hurricanes now. We've got variations with flooding. And some of our eastern ecosystems are impacted because of too much water. Or uh, maybe we've got areas that are now having freezing temperatures that have never had freezing temperatures in the past. And so climate change is not created equally depending on where you're at across the country and across the world, frankly. And so it is a little bit more difficult to, to speak to. I'm sure you all remember a couple of years ago, uh, it was right around this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas that we had a large fire season along the east and within um, parts of um, Kentucky and um, several states really out, out east. And, and we mobilized several resources from the west to go help them fight all of those fires. And we were there for months, several months. We, we drove our engines across the country on low boys and we flew firefighters out there and we had all of our resources staged along the East Coast in several different areas to respond to their wildfires that they were having uh, this time of year. And we just rotated crews out every couple of weeks. We had, we had resources there for Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. And, and we fought a lot of fire in the East. And so the traditional fire season that we speak to out West, you know, that, that's varied as you head further east and their fire seasons are are a lot of times um, opposite what we see out west. I've fought a lot of fires in Arkansas and Missouri in January, February, and March. And even into the plain states up north, we're we're now seeing areas that just don't have any any snow and so you you're having grassland areas across Montana and Dakotas that are having large fires right now just just last week we saw one that impacted a community um, and I believe that was in Montana and so it just depends and and I think that's a really important aspect that a lot of people don't understand they, they see our large wildfire season out west during the summer but we're fighting fire in different parts of the country almost 12 months out of the year right now. And you just don't hear about it as much as you do the large fires that we have out West, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. Um, I've spent every single holiday on fires. Ever, I've, I've spent Thanksgiving on a fire. I've spent Christmas on a fire. A lot of our firefighters are deployed right now across the country fighting fire and you just don't hear about it because it's just not as mainstream as as the you know summer wildfires out west mm -hmm. that's crazy is there anything else we haven't touched on yet that you want to be sure to mention um so i do think that it's really important to understand that wildfires don't understand boundaries they don't stop at property boundaries. They don't stop, you know, on these artificial lines that, that we as humans have created. It's really important that we work across our communities and across all of our different residences and within these important recreating groups 
to be able to take some of that responsibility and help to individually prepare for wildfires in these areas. And, and there's a lot of causes. I know that, you know, we've got the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. That's such a great partnership with us. We've got the Mule Deer Foundation. Again, such a great partnership with, with us. And there's a lot of different uh, organizations that, that many of your listeners are probably a part of. And I think that that is so important. I'm also part of many of those organizations. A lot of those partnerships nationally, regionally, locally are really making changes to what we're able to accomplish on the ground. And they're very concrete changes. And it's everything from, you know, treating landscapes and doing fuel treatments to guzzlers and all sorts of different, you know, ecosystem habitat improvement projects. And, and so I just kind of want to take a minute to thank all of those different groups and, and really make sure that they understand and, and are aware that, that those go such a long way. Those partnerships are so important to us. And, and I'm really hoping that we can continue to grow those partnerships across you know, really across the entire country, but specifically out West, they, they help us meet some of these challenges that we're facing right now in trying to reduce wildfire risk and really promoting, you know, healthy landscapes, resilient landscapes. We need those partnerships to continue and to probably increase, to increase the pace and scale to meet the climate that we're currently facing. And so I just wanted to, to put a shout out out there, um, you know, in support of those partnerships and, and really increasing um, the awareness around those partnerships and the good work that, that those groups allow us to do and the important role that they play in this uh, really big, big problem that we're faced right with right now. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because I do think in all of the conversations that we've had, um, quality habitat is, is, is where we need to start. And, um, and I'm sure all of our listeners, uh, I, I hope all of our listeners have had the opportunity to participate in some of those super fun work parties that help enhance the quality of the habitat, um, and working with agencies and to do that is always, always great fun. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, pretty rewarding if if you have not gone out and you know installed a guzzler or worked on you know there's a there's so many aspen restoration you know projects if you've not gone out and done that i would encourage you all to do that because it is really rewarding to be able to go out you know a couple years later and being able to see the effects on the ground and being able to actually see those changes happen and and you know, it's a, it's a really, those partnerships are so critical to us and so important. And so I just had to take a minute to, to throw that out there and, you know, say thanks to a lot of your listeners and, and encourage more of it. It's important. We need, we need the help. Okay. So if y'all are planning some new year's resolutions, that's a good one to add to the list for sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Becca, this is usually the part where I ask if you have any burning questions, but I feel like that isn't appropriately phrased for this particular podcast. 
Do you have any um, last, what, last questions, final questions? Marsha, I don't have any questions, but I do just want to say I appreciate that sort of the theme of this episode kept coming back to resiliency because um, being proactive out there is, I don't know, I feel like personally I can get a little bit overwhelmed and bogged down thinking about the massive hurdles that we have to jump with regards to fire and habitat and invasive species and climate change, all of it piled on top of each other, but finding ways to actually be proactive. And these habitat projects that Gwen just mentioned are a great example, but um, proactive habitat restoration, resiliency, all of it um, sort of gives the people that focus on these huge obstacles every day a little bit of positive uh, positivity. So I like that that we've come back to over and over again in this episode. And that's actually a nice segue into our last question for you, Gwen, which is as someone who works in this every day and faces the effects of climate change head on, what gives you hope? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it goes back to, to the mission and the why. Uh, you have no option but to have hope. You can't give up on people. You can't give up on ecosystems. You can't give up on the communities that we live in and we serve. You can't give up on all the wildlife that's so important to all of us. And, you know, that, that really makes living worth, worth experiencing and going through. And, and so a lot of those types of things, that's, that's what keeps us going. That's what gives us hope. It's because there is a sense of duty and commitment to continue to serve these communities that we serve and we live in and these ecosystems that are so important to us as well. We do this, be, you know, not for the money. Uh, it's not always <laughs> great money, as you all have heard. We do this because we love those resources and we love those ecosystems and, and we're some of the, the biggest track creators in the business. And, and so, you know, when I think about hope, there, there's a lot that gives me hope. There's a lot of different changes uh, with the infrastructure bill, the omnibus bill that's come up. There's been a lot of movements in the political realm and support around this politically. And I think all of that is, is really great and timely. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a little bit of, you know, of hope around the potential and the opportunity that that's coming, but it's a lot about the duty and the duty that we have to serve and protect the communities that we live in and that we're part of. And, and that's really what keeps us going is a desire to serve and be servants of the landscape and be servants of the people. Thank, thank you so much. I really appreciate the 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 way that you said that. Uh, we at Artemis talk a lot about reciprocity and how um, it's a responsibility of ours to be reciprocal to um, to the land that gives us so much. Um, and I really appreciate the focus on duty and service um, because I don't think we use that language to talk about our relationship with the natural world often enough. And I definitely appreciate that framing. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. That's, oh, sorry. I'm not sure That's if you okay. heard the, the dogs in the background. Yeah. Oh, I guess. Um, 
yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to look at it in those terms as well. I, I think it's important. Gwen, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your knowledge. I, I'm deeply appreciative of it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to you and, and your viewers and just give a little bit different perspective. It's always great to, to be able to have these discussions and, and maybe share a different perspective. And so thank you for that opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, anytime. Let's do it again. <laughs> To, yeah. Our, yeah. to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. As I mentioned at the top, this is a wrap not only on our climate series, which I hope you have enjoyed and learned from, but also to our second year um, as a podcast. Woohoo! Woo We've heard some amazing stories, uh, learned a lot and laughed a lot. And I know that everybody here at, at the Artemis Podcast is so grateful for this community. Thank you so much for joining us week after week. We look forward to all that we can share together in 2022. And until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank you.